Hey, hey, it's just Soma79 with a special announcement. My new Mega Mix is up. My MSD Mega Mix Oxidation Moons Day is now available. Go to www.soma79.com slash doom to check it out. It's a 30-minute mix that I did of MF Doom raps over my own beats. I really enjoy it. I hope you really enjoy it. So check it out. Tell a friend. Peace. Hey, welcome to the Articulate Ox Podcast. I'm your host, Soma79. Thank you so, 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 so much for joining me today. My guest today is Eric Eagle. He is a drum, drummer extraordinaire. This dude definitely can drum. Um, we talk all about his long history, his band, his drumming school now, uh, his, how we teach drum, drum lessons now online. He has a great new book out, A Guide to Rhythmic Freedom, which sounds absolutely fantastic. Eric was a great interview, had a lot of great stories, and I definitely recommend you go check out ericegold.com. You're going to see that underneath his name of the entire episode or in the show notes, but um, for whatever reason, you don't see that. It's E-R-I-K-E-G-O-L.com. So uh, definitely go check that out. All right. And um, as for me, my song, uh, Soma 79, Pillsy Beats, Quiet Life, Loud Friends, still streaming everywhere. And um, I'm just now wrapping up an EP with my man, Anthony Church, from the previous episode. It's called Zero for a Day. I got to figure out what the cover art's going to be. Need to work on that this weekend. So uh, stay tuned more information to come and I hope you enjoy the episode peace meet Anne with wings clips quick to flip manuscripts cause her man went from damaged kid to damn he's rich but she still can't stand the way he manages to never put nickels in hey welcome to the newest episode of the Articulate Ox podcast I am your host Soma79 thank you so much for joining me my guest today is cousin of Articulate Ox royalty Jared Ego uh, this is um, his cousin, drum uh, drum royalty, we'll call it that, Eric Eagle. What's going on today, Eric? How you doing? Good to see you, man. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to uh, talk to you as well. Any um, any friend of, Eric, of uh, Jared's, a friend of mine, man. I'm so glad to have you here. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about your old band, Sligo. Did I get that right? Schleiho. Schleiho. God damn it. It's so hard. <laughs> You can take that again and splice it in if you want. Yeah, I know. You're, you're a band, Schlego. Um, it's funny. As soon as I, I read about your band and um, you you were from, uh, you guys played around the Webster, no, Wendell Mass area, right? We lived in Wendell, actually. I don't think there is a place to play in Wendell. Yeah. Except Population maybe like, under a thousand. Yeah, the, the Wendell uh, Full Moon Coffee House was like the one place that there was actually music, but they were there was no room for a band on that stage. Well, check them out if you're ever in town, I guess. But um, you're not far, you're not you're relatively not far from where uh, this where I like to call the Soma Drome is. Um, so I the um, I as soon as I read about you guys, I mean, that name sounds really familiar. And I, I texted my one friend. I'm like, if anybody knows who these guys are, he will know instantly. He's like, oh yeah, I know these guys. They're awesome. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, we lived there for a really long time. Like, I think we lived in Wendell for ten years. We lived in two different houses. We wanted to be in the woods because when we came off the road, it was, you know, city lights, city lights, big clubs, lots of people, blah, blah, blah. We just wanted to be in a farmhouse in the woods where we could hang out and rehearse and sleep late and make as much noise as we wanted. Our landlords were awesome. We could walk to the store. 
Everyone knew us. We knew everybody. I mean, like you said, there's 150 people in town and 20 of them are living in school buses. So it was really cool. 20 of them are living in school buses? Oh, yeah. There are people in Wendell living living in school buses in the woods. Like they just, you know, they, they, they buy it. a school bus. They drive it into a, you know, they buy five acres. They drive the bus onto the land. They put a wood burning stove in it. And that's what else do you need in life, right? You need a roof, a wood stove. And that's kind of it in the world. Like, yeah. <laughs> do you think the same people are still out there? I have no idea. Oh. I know two or three people that still live in Wendell, and I haven't talked to them, unfortunately, in years. But oh. I wish them all well. It was a great town. We loved it there. Yeah, I love Western Massachusetts. Yeah. It's, um, it's beautiful out here. It's, uh, yeah, I'm so glad. I moved out here a few years ago and basically do the same stuff that you're talking about as I wanted place where I could, you know, not bothered. I could make as much noise as I want and I can yeah. get away from pretty much everybody. We did play in Northampton a lot. We used to play at the Iron Horse all the time. And that's uh, coming back now, finally, or there, like there was a big problem with the liquor licenses in town post COVID. Now they finally got it reserved, resolved. So all those places are coming back. Yeah, I, I think it was Iron Horse, Pearl Street and yeah. the Fire and Water Cafe. I wonder if that place is still there. Fire and Water Cafe was very cool. I have to look it up. It doesn't ring a bell, but um, I've, I've only been here for a few years and most of it's, you know, obviously a lot of it was under COVID. I moved out here in like in like June. I bought this place in May of 2020. So it was like one, it was like week two of being in an apartment stuck by myself. I'm like, this ain't going to cut it. <laughs> no, that's so funny. We, My wife and I moved into this house uh, January of 2020 and we were locked down in three months and her business was wiped out. And we thought we, we thought we were going to lose the house before we even made our first mortgage payment. Oh my God. Somehow like I was already teaching online. So I moved, I grew up in New York and then went to college in Boston at Berkeley and then Schleho formed and we moved to Western Mass. I lived in that area between New York and Western Mass for a really long time. And then I met my wife in California and moved out there to be with her because I wasn't going to make her move back east. She lived in California. I was like, this yeah. is a no brainer. I'm moving to get out of there. Yeah. So we lived in California and then moved back and bought this place in January 2020. And um, I was teaching a ton of students in California, I had like 40 students a week, um, which is about my max. But I held that for many, many years. And That's a lot uh, of students. So luckily I already was making a living online when COVID hit and became a thing. Oh, Otherwise good. we literally would have been wiped out, but yeah. we managed to just keep our noses above water for those two years. And then my wife's business got back up and running and now everything's cool, but it was rough for a while. That's awesome. That's, that's yeah. glad. I'm so glad that worked out. I mean, yeah. and I can totally like the, that's, oh, here's my cat just making um, a sneak appearance. Hi, <laughs> yeah. This is Eric. What's up? This is Chloe. <laughs> What's going on? She's been addicted to being on my lap all the time now. So I'll yeah. give her the chance to do that. Yeah. But um, so you so you mentioned before that you went to Berkeley from New York. I one thing that when I was looking through your your bio that really jumped out at me at you that I want to ask you was about CBGBs. Huge um, like I'm a huge I'm a huge hip hop guy, but right below that for me is punk. Got a Dead Kennedys record in the mail today. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Uh, um and uh what what's how it cbgb's tell me something tell, blow my mind <laughs> when, when i was in high school i was like i was a drummer since fourth grade wow um i just fell in love with it um i had a really great idol who inspired me his name is ron riddle he's like a really big um movie and television soundtrack writer now um, but he was in a couple of really big bands, uh, Happy the Man. He played with um, 
the Burn Sisters, Blue Oyster Cult, uh, with Alex Skolnick and Stu Ham. He was like, he was a big, he was a big guy. And yeah. anyway, I was young, and he used to come to New York City with his band, and stay at our apartment and give us backstage passes. And so, from literally from age like seven, eight years old, nine years old, I would get to sit behind the stage and watch him drum. And that was it. Like, so for me, you know, they were like fourth grade, fifth grade, pick your instrument. We're going to do band. I picked right. it. So anyway, long story short, it was totally my thing right from the start. And then in high school, I was in a couple different bands. And um, one of those bands was called Disband. D-I-S-B-A-N-D. Very clever. And, um, yeah. Dis Disband and yeah. also Disband, right? Yeah. Don't worry. I get it. <laughs> um, we I were, it. we played punk and ska. And we played um, at CBGB's. They had a Sunday matinee for all, a Sunday all ages matinee, where it didn't matter how old the members of the band were or how old the crowd was, they were letting everyone in on Sunday afternoons. That's awesome. So that band, Disband, played at CBGB's all the time. And then I was in another band, like a hippie, hippie rock, classic rock. Um, with some originals, but playing Dead and Doors and Hendrix and Fish. Um, we were called Karma Sutra, and we used to play at Wetlands. So even in high school, I was like, well, actually, I, did, I don't know if this band, uh, uh, if Karma Sutra ever played Wetlands. Well, I think maybe we did, but I was in one band playing the Hippie Club on one weekend, and then I was in the Punk and Ska band playing CBs on another weekend. And this is all before I could even drink legally. I was like 16, 17 years old. Wow. So that got me hooked on the live thing. Like, honestly, yeah, the energy of the crowd. Um, I got to admit, you know, my ego was like starting to get really out of hand already at that point. Loved having a crowd screaming at me. Um, one night at CBGB's, some guy, I don't know whether he loved the band or hated us, but he literally threw a table at us. And Blues runner style. Yeah, yeah, but it could have been like, yeah, you guys are awesome because it was yeah, singers, yeah, yeah. right. So who knows? Maybe they thought we sucked. Maybe they loved us. But our singer kicked the table back into the crowd while he was singing. Oh my god! And I remember seeing that and being like, oh my god, I want to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> like, did this, is this happening? Like, it was it was awesome. So I was really lucky, and I was in a, a youth orchestra at that time that played at Carnegie Hall. So wow. my high school music life was crazy. I was like in a tux at Carnegie Hall, and then a month later, I was like smoking weed outside playing Wetlands, and then I was like fending off thrown tables at CBGB's. It was it was great. So. Any um any memories of seeing shows at CBGB's? Any um No. I yeah. never I don't think I ever saw a show at CBGB's. I played there a lot, but like I said, I was too young to get into shows. Oh, that's a good point. The yeah. Shows I could get into were the ones that I was playing drums at. I, admittedly, I don't think I ever saw a show at G CBGB's. If I did, <laughs> I don't remember it. I'm not So was that. your whole band underage? Oh yeah, we were all in high school. That's so funny. I used to be in this rap crew when I first started and there was like 12 of us and I was the oldest, but the youngest were in like 15 in high school. And I was just like, like it's so much cooler that they're doing this than I'm doing this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I was trying, I was also auditioning for bands back then um, where I was 16, 17 and I'd come down and play Slayer and Metallica tunes with 20 year olds and 25 year olds 
And you know, I mean, not to yank my own chain, but like drums was my life. So I was getting pretty good. I would put a yeah. lot of effort into it so I could play these Slayer tunes and these Metallica tunes when I was 16, 17. But the looks on some of these guys' faces, I would answer an ad, of course, I would never say how old I was. And there was no internet, right? So I was calling numbers from yeah. the back of the village voice, you know, drummer wanted. And yep. I'd call the number and I'd be like, yeah, I want to come down and audition. They'd be like, okay, here's the address, seven o'clock Saturday night or more like two. Oh, hang on, sorry. No worries. My lights are on a timer. That's cool. Hang on, I got, I got control here. I mean, too young's better than too old, I'd say. I mean, in, in this instance. Like... Yeah, because now I'm too old and I don't want to play any gigs anymore. <laughs> yeah. Someone like, invited I... me to bingo and trivia night. I'm like, I'll be honest with you. Even if they're going every Tuesday and every Wednesday, I'm never going to make it. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I'm glad I did it all early in my life because I know a lot of people who did something else out of college and now all they want to do is hit the road and gig. Yeah. I played live from age 15 to 35 nonstop. You know, with Schleho, we were doing 250, sometimes 300 nights a year. We did wow. that for over 12 years. So I'm, I got my fill. Like, it's hard yeah. to get me out at all anymore, so. Wow. Yeah. So were you, when when that sort of came to an end, and we'll get to the whole story, were you ready for it to um, to end, or could you have kept going forever if you wanted to? With, with Schleho? Yeah. After no. 12 years, I guess. Or all no, the, we, like, those all wanted to, we all wanted it to end. We So, again, lots of long stories here, but okay. we went through a couple of really hard things um, all at the same time. So... In 2001, there was, or 2000, there was 9-11. Our keyboard player's father died of cancer. And there was the smoking ban, which was brand new. Oh, yeah. Like, I remember all that. of a sudden, you couldn't smoke in clubs in America. Yeah. Right? That was nationwide, practically. So... I was no longer coming home from like from like club nights in Avalon with cigarette burns in my arms. Yeah, it was stinking of of cigarettes, right? And that was a rough transition for a lot of places. There's a well, place called was. the Iron Lung in my old neighborhood that had to shut down. They were they tried to get they tried to get a specialty permit because that was their whole novelty is you could smoke there, and they're like, nope, not you either. No, no one. So we were on tour on 9/11, and. We did that whole tour for basically empty clubs because for a month, no one was coming out. Everyone was glued right. to their TV. So we were glued to the TV. We would load in, sound check, and then sit at the bar and watch TV and then play in front of like 25 people in a club that we used to bring 200 people to. But again, it was like September 20th, you know, no one's coming. Yeah. So that was rough. What my keyboard player had to go through with his father was extremely rough and the smoking ban was killing crowds. So. Just after the 2000s, like 2003, 2004, we felt we were really like, even though we were reaching the, the bottom of the top and the top of the bottom, we were working so hard for it that we were starting yeah. to get tired of it. And um, the partying wasn't really that fun anymore. We'd already partied for eight, nine, 10 years after every gig. It just wasn't that big a deal. So we were poolside in Miami, bitching at each other, like, you know, husband and wife at each other's throats, like bad marriage type situation. And our road manager got sick and tired of it. He said, all right, well, who would rather be home right now? Literally, we're sitting poolside in Miami drinking wine at like two in, two in the afternoon, like living the, the rock star life, right? All four hands shut up. Yeah. We're like, we all wanna go home. As you said that, if I could have been there today at 2 p.m. or sitting where I was at 2 p.m., I'd still pick where I am today. <laughs> yeah, I'm at that 
back point of my life too. It's like, you know. We're tired of it. And, and, you know, there's, there's both sides, of course, to anything. I'm not, I'm, I'm definitely happy to be where I am and I'm glad I'm not touring. I, I don't even, you know, sometimes getting me out even to play a local gig is kind of a drag. At the same yeah. time, I wish that we'd been more mature about it then because we really had some great momentum. Like some bands like peak and then, you know, they fizzle out and then they break up. Like we were on our way up. We, we had positive momentum. We had signed with the Allman Brothers to Flying Frog Records. We'd put out two records for them, which were both great. We had some, there were some record label issues. I'm not gonna, not gonna drag anyone through the mud, but like any. Yeah, I wouldn't be shocked to find out the Almond Brothers record label wasn't amazingly run. You know, that's exactly the case. I love them. Big fan. I have some stories, but we had some issues with them, even though they meant well and we meant well. It just it didn't it didn't work out the way we'd hoped it did. But we still had great positive momentum. But we bailed because we didn't like to be on the road and we were tired of it. Now, if we'd been more mature, we could have scaled back and done more select stuff and regrouped, but we just were like, yeah, fuck this. Now, after that, we all got nostalgic for it. And then we kind of came back for a little while, like in 2005, 2010, 2015, we were playing a little bit, but it, it never got back to the level it was either musically or moment, like crowd momentum wise, yeah. you know? When we when we stopped playing, that was our peak. We were at our peak right then, and then we just gave it up. So it was also sort of the peak of the music industry too, like the early two thousands. It's like I mean, because I I have um I had Steve Levy on, who was the founder of Moonshine Music, which is a big techno label I loved back then, yeah. and he it the, the label seemed to disappear overnight, and I never found out what happened. So I got him on, and I asked him, and he said a lot of it came down on September eleventh that that just had this ricochet effect that. It really hurt the retail industry in particular. Yeah. And it then the it, COVID, it was like the COVID yes. of that time. It just wiped out live music for six months and some clubs never came back and some bands never came back. And even after it just wasn't the same. The economy wasn't great. Because I remember too, what he was saying was that what happened was a lot of the, the deals were that when you sold these CDs, that they could sell them back to you if they didn't sell. And because the economy kind of tanked, so many labels were being forced to buy back all these CDs they sold a year and a half ago, and they couldn't they, they couldn't weather the storm, which, you know, it's the record, the record industry was, you probably got out at the right time. Well, there were a lot of reasons why I believe that. I mean, the jam band scene that we were on, and and admittedly, we were like on the, on the, fusion side of the jam scene. There were some really like goofy doofy, you know, um, butterflies and roses lyrics, like twirling dancer stuff. We were like the sinister feel yeah. to that. And people dug that, but that oh, scene okay. didn't care. That scene was like, you know, jazz mandolin project, which is basically a bluegrass band and Schleho would play back to back and our fans loved them and then their fans loved us. Like yeah. it was this family thing going on back then. Everyone was touring together. You do, you'd have an opening band with you for three weeks at a time. And then you'd flip, you'd open for them in their area. We were, everyone was trading gigs. Um, this was pre-internet. So it was, we were sending out mailers, you know, you, you sent the calendar. If, if you came within four hours of your fans, they would come to see you. There was no such thing as couch tour. I mean, this is, who thought of that? Like, right. I get it. People can make more money when they're selling tickets to people who don't come to their shows. I get that. 
but who wants people to not come to their shows? Yeah. This whole internet thing where you're like, oh, I can watch any show in the world right now from my couch. Not necessarily the best thing for live music. You know what's funny about that too, though, is that like, um, there will be times where I'm like, oh, I really want to, Rancid's playing a show. I love going to see Rancid. And then like, I'm like, oh, well, I could just always look online because everybody's always taping with their phone. There's got to be videos on their phone. So I'll just right. maybe do that. And then, then I don't even do that. And right. so it's like, for me, the entire, it's almost like once it's so accessible, I almost don't even care about it at all anymore. It's, it's just, just yeah, like, that's the saturation factor. Yeah. Back, back in. I logic myself out of the emotional attachment that I have had essentially. Right. Sometimes a band that you liked only came to your town three or four times a year. Everyone yeah. went to that show. Now, like you said, there's so much to choose from. It's almost hard to have a favorite band. It's like, oh, I like a million bands this much instead of I like six bands like this much. These are these guys right. are awesome. And again, people used to come eight hours to see us play because that's as close as we were going to get to them. Yeah. I, I so don't, you know, it happens sometimes now, but not as often. I don't what's think. funny is like so in every generation, including I'd say now, there are certain icons of music that are just undeniably the ones you'll never, you know, for our generation, it's like you know, Taylor Swift and it's like these people that are just bigger than big. But there used to be that class below them that was sort of also pretty big. But now it's like everybody, including like me in my you know studio here and like people that have maybe been grinding out for 10 years are kind of on the same platform. We're all fighting for the same like little bit. That's and it's right. like, it's a real pain in the ass because I'm not trying to make a dime out of this. I'm doing this for fun. So I can't imagine it's like how annoying it would be if like your job was to dig ditches and with someone like me who just enjoyed doing it for free. And it's like, it's one of those things to the right. It's, 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 it's just, it's frustrating. I'm sure for anybody trying to make it. hundred percent, hundred percent. Like I said, you know, before the internet, you went to see live music because that's the only place you could see live music. I mean, right. think about that, the difference in that, from being able to see no live music unless you went to the club to being able to see every single musician on the planet Earth from your living room anytime you want. Yeah. That's, those are two different planets. There's no comparison. <laughs> you know what's a great example of that? You know the band Digital Underground, the rap group? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm a huge fan of them. So, but like I, so because of the age I'm at, when I started listening to them, I never really realized that Shock G and Humpty Hump were the same person. I didn't realize that till one night I was at a, I was in, in West LA at a show in like the mid aughts where he was behind me as Shock G. I'm like, that, that guy sounds familiar. And then he came out on stage later as Humpty. I'm like, oh, that's the same dude. Right. But like, I enjoyed them for all this time without realizing that two guys were really one guy and you don't have that it's like that mystery was sort of part of the enjoyment and it's because like, all i knew was a little bit that i saw inside the um the cd case and like yeah because people are like who's this what does this mean what does right. what does schleho mean but uh, we we had this thing where we do we used to do college in uh college radio station interviews in like every town we went to we had this thing where every every dj would ask us what the name of the band meant and we would give them a different answer in every single interview one of us would just make something up and yeah. so no one ever knew, but there were all these like funny little anecdotes that were all completely different. Now it's just like, you know, Schleicher was a band from New York city with four members and blah, 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 blah. you know, it's like, yeah. like you said, there's no mystery. I'd ask you what it meant, but at this point, I'm not going to believe you. So I'm not even going to bother to ask you. It what was, was your favorite fake answer? I guess. How, how's that? Oh, I think, I think it was the um, exclamation uttered by Czechoslovakian serfs upon unearthing an extra large potato. 
Ooh. So they pull it out of the ground and go, Shleho! I was engaged to a Czechoslovakian woman for 11 years, so I will send her this clip and see and ask her to respond. In the that comments. was one of my favorites. We had lots like that. But. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome, man. Yeah. So, all right. So, I, you know, I told you we'd start off talking about your book, but I just dove right into something totally different. So let's get back to that, then we'll talk well, a little more about yeah, My band is literally 25 years old, 30 years old. 30 yeah, it's a good We point. just had our 30th anniversary tour. The book is literally one week old. So there's there's definitely a lot more to talk about with Schleil yeah. than the book. But. So, all right. So in 25 years, we'll come back and talk about the book. Now, back to the band. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So the book, um, A Guide to Rhythmic Freedom, which is a really beautiful beautiful title like i really i read that i'm like oh that's poetic um i don't know shit about drums one thing i will tell you is i did buy one of these the other day and um oh, i don't know yeah. the machine plus like this thing is my new toy this is going to be my my ticket into the world of drums <laughs> yeah, that's what i do <laughs> but um so let's talk about this book a little bit sure. um what do you got okay so I, I wrote a book 15 years ago that I never really did anything with. And the idea was, and I had some, I've had some great teachers in my life. So I can't take a hundred percent credit. I'm going to take like 75% credit for this book. 25% was really inspired by my best teachers. One of whom was Bob Galati. There's a book called syncopation. Um, that's world famous. Um, every, drum teacher and drummer uses it. And it's just a book of rhythms. It's it's very basic in, in its design. It's a book of rhythms, quarter note, eighth note, triplet and 16th note rhythms. And because it's so plain over the years, and it's a very old book, it's probably been out for 60 or 70 years. Yeah, but drums have been years, around for a real long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and this book has been like the main go-to for most drummers for a long time. But anyway, every Every good drum teacher has a million ways to play syncopation, meaning ways to apply that book to drum set. Okay, and let, let me give you an example. I mean, I'm sitting yeah, at my kid. I might as well it. show you. If you have a really simple rhythm like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, okay, that is a rhythm, and that's in the book. But then your teacher's gonna tell you, okay, get this going with your hands and play that rhythm with your foot. So now you're one, Or do this with your foot and your hand and play this with your right hand. One, two, three, and four. One, two, three, and four. And that's a simple rhythm. This goes to full complexity. It doesn't matter if you're going. I'm playing the same rhythm. So the whole deal with the book syncopation is that, and, and there's there's a jazz method, right? So if you're playing jazz, you just keep this going and you play that with your left hand. One, two, three, and four. One, two, three, and four. Or one, two, three, and four. Or you split it up. One, two, three, and four. One, two, three, and four. Latin beats. Right hand. One, two, three, and four. One, two, three, and four. One, two, three, and four. So the whole idea with syncopation over all of these years is every drummer, every drum teacher was like, well, these are just rhythms. Play it with your hands on top of a foot pattern. Play it with your feet underneath a hand pattern. And this, this is universal. This is a good way to teach. So I wrote a book 
a long time ago that was called the syncopation companion. And it basically outlines 60 ways to use syncopation. But I never did anything with it. I, I wasn't, I'm not computer savvy and I was doing it myself and I don't have any marketing skills. So I used it with my students and that was kind of it, but it was really like what everybody was doing. Fast forward to recently, I've got 20 more, 15 more years of teaching under my belt. Those 60 ways are now 250, 300 ways. And syncopation is not complete by any means. It doesn't, there's, it doesn't even complete eighth notes, which are the second most basic rhythm in music. The second most common rhythm in all music is, is and they don't even, syncopation doesn't even give you all of them. Now, why is that? Just because of the limitations of I can't ask time and space. Guy, Ted Reed, the author, has passed away. I can't ask him. He just put a sampling in. And same with triplets. One triplet rhythm. There's eight triplet rhythms. He gives you one. There are 16 16th note rhythms. No, no, no coincidence. It's not, oh, 16 means 16. It's just math. But there happens to be 16 ways to play four 16th notes. He gives you three of them. And this is the most widely used book in all of drum teaching. So I was like, I Where's need a book that yeah. has all of them. Like, why am I teaching out of a book that gives a sampling of eighth notes and one triplet rhythm? And like, I just didn't understand it. So, so I started doing that. So I started compiling every rhythmic possibility of every, we call it a subdivision of notes. So you divide a beat into one, one, two, three, four, just one beat per beat, one note per beat. Yeah. Or you divide it in half, one and two and three and four and, or you divide it into thirds, one triplet, two triplet, three triplet. Four. This goes on forever, literally. Right. Yeah. So these subdivisions are very common in music and everything that you hear, musician, no, it doesn't matter what instrument they're playing, literally, it doesn't matter what instrument. Everybody's just combining different subdivisions and different variations of each subdivision. It's like the letters of the alphabet. 26 letters, every word you've ever spoken, every word you've ever read, right. it's the same letters. So this is the same in music. In some simple pop bands, you may only really be getting like five or six or 10 different rhythms in the tune. But then you listen to a, you know, Meshuggah or Tool or Stravinsky or John Coltrane and there are hundreds of combinations, maybe a thousand in a seven note, in a seven minute piece. So the first inspiration was, I'm gonna complete syncopation. I'm not gonna let my students get away with learning one or two or three variations of something that there's only 15 of, like just learn all 15. Yeah, yeah. So that's the first section of the book. It's called Complete Rhythmic Vocabulary and it is completely uncompromised, complete rhythmic vocabulary in subdivisions one through seven. Once you get to eight, you're really just playing two groups of four again. So I drew the line at seven because if you're teaching music, once you get to eight note subdivisions, you're just playing fours twice. So I was like, okay, I'm going one through seven. The second thing about the book that is amazing is, you know, those, that style that I just showed you, oh, play the bass drum under the rock beat. Oh, play the snare drum under the jazz beat. Okay, I've got 175 of those in the book because there's 58 hand patterns that are common in rock from one, two, three, Four to one and two and three and four and one and a two and three and a four and a one and a three 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 and
Like, I mean, I, but it, you, at that point, like, ah, oh, there can't be any more. Or it's like, oh, you're no. here 59, like, next week? Or is there a mathematical reason? Um, well, that's a great question. So I put 58 because it does kind of go to infinity, and I did have to draw the line somewhere. So the 58, ro and those are just the rock hand patterns. That doesn't even go into the jazz patterns or the Latin grooves or the odd meter grooves that are in the book. So there's over 175 patterns in the book to use the vocabulary and the 58 is just the hand rock patterns. And the reason I stopped at 58 is because I exhausted all of the really common, useful, gotta know this rhythms in, in 58. And if you'll ask my editor, he'll tell you, you know, I started with 30 and then I was like, oh, let me add these six. Oh, I got 10 more. And he was like, at one point he's like, well, are you going to go on forever? And I was like, yeah. yeah, you're right. So the other thing to mention is combinations. So as another example, like here's, you know, here's a hand pattern. You've also got the easy ones that I explained earlier or this. Now, when you hear a drummer playing, they don't just play one of those over and over and over. I mean, some of them do. You're listening to a Tom Petty tune, yeah. you're going to hear that over and over, right? But most bands and drummers will vary it up. So what you get is a mixture, like one, So what I did there may sound complicated, but I'm literally just spelling words with letters. I just used a lot of different letters instead of being like A, 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 it's like A, B, 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 C, D. So once you've done those four, those 58 repetitively, the infinity of music starts when you start. Yeah. I'll do three of these and then I'll switch it to this. And then, oh, I'll do it on the floor, Tom. Instead of, I'll move it over here. Yeah. Which no one in the audience realizes that this is the same pattern. And right. there's more motion in the second one, but my hands are doing the same thing. So the book is really about the alphabet of drumming. So when, if you, someone wrote a book and said, oh, I've got all the letters in the alphabet in this book, um, people would be like, oh, that's great. But then you've got a dictionary. <laughs> The difference between the alphabet and the dictionary is the difference between some drum books out there and my drum book. Rhythmic Freedom is about, here's all of the things you can do, and here's a whole lot of combinations, but you can, you can keep combining them forever, and that's how you write music. Now, is it just, is it, is it by forcing people, not forcing, but by suggesting that people take a deeper dive into these different combinations, is it just the, the idea that you're not just repeating the small number and pushing yourself to learn new things will inevitably just open your minds up to the more of the possibilities? Yes. Yeah. So first of all, you do have to learn the, you do have to learn to play one pattern repetitively before you start adding variations. Like I said, there are plenty of really successful and amazing musical acts that don't use much variety of rhythm in their music. It's not taboo. I mean, right. you're talking about the simplest rock beat that you can teach a kid. I can teach a, a fourth grader to go. 
Right. I'm sure there's some acts playing at CBGBs that, you know, that were slightly below Keith Moon, you know, it's. Oh, and better than Keith Moon. And that beat that I just played is both Cashmere by Led Zeppelin and Beat It by Michael Jackson. It's the same beat. So it's not like these simple beats are not, they're not baby beats. They're not for kids. You got to learn the simple stuff. You got to learn the repetition. And then when you, when you've been doing that for some years, you start varying it sometimes by accident. One of the exercises that I have my students do is you don't stop for mistakes. I mean, yes, you do when you're practicing. If you make a mistake, it's good to stop and go back. But there's a whole nother skill that I teach. You don't stop for mistakes. You have to keep moving. And those mistakes often become the variation. Oh, you left a note out? Who cares? Like the audience doesn't know you didn't mean to leave that note out. Right. You don't have to stop everything and tell them, you know? Right. Even some just the look on your face will tell people you made a mistake. So you just keep smiling. No one knows it's a mistake unless you actually like break your time. Time is the essence of drumming, steady time. If you break steady time, people will go, oh, that was weird. But you can do anything you want as long as you have steady time. And if you get into some of the weirder jazz and experimental music, you don't even have to have steady time. I mean, Schleho, people will laugh when they hear this. They'll be like, oh yeah, Schleho didn't have steady time. But I mean, we used to speed up if we felt like it. And we'd bring another section of a tune down if we felt like it. You don't hear that in pop music. All right. As a Sonic Youth fan, I fully endorse that. Yeah. I mean, Pink Floyd, like time, you can't listen to a Beatles song. If you listen to the beginning of a Beatles song and you tap out the tempo on a metronome, go ahead and tap out the, the, the tempo at the end of the song. And it ain't, it ain't close. Yeah. Okay. Like, Hey, uh, dear. That's only because Ringo didn't really know what he was doing. He knew half of what he was doing. He had a lot of weird, he had a lot of weird idiosyncrasies, but But that's makes people special, you know? Yeah, but that's what makes music special. Yeah. Pink, like I said, Dear Prudence, that song starts off really quiet and beautiful, acoustic guitar. At the end, it's like, right? And it's way faster. The whole song speeds up. Pink Floyd, Time, because I teach this song to students all the time. The verse is at one speed and the chorus is down here. And then it's ticking away the moment that it's tired of lying in the sunshine. It slows down. You just- It's almost like a fever dream. (laughs) Yeah, you've got to fit the mood. So again, what I'm talking about now is advanced stuff that it kind of, you kind of have to be an experienced musician to do it intelligently. You can't just be like speeding up and slowing down as a drummer. You have to very intentionally discuss with your band, hey, let's play this section fast. You can't just pull it off on stage without telling anyone or people be like, dude, why are you speeding up? It's it's best to discuss beforehand. But once it's discussed and agreed upon, it's like a trick play in baseball. You you know, you gotta be like, I'm gonna keep the ball in my glove. You can't just keep the ball in your glove. You know? Right. So that's like the whole book is learn the basics without omitting any rhythms because there's not that many. It's very finite. Then apply those rhythms to every style of music whether it be rock, you play it with the hands, you play it with the foot, it's jazz, you play it with the left hand and the bass drum, it's Latin. Um, And then there's a thing in in drumming called stickings, which is like, you either play the right hand or the left hand and there's infinite combinations of rights and lefts. And a lot of times, again, 
drummers hide what they're doing in their stickings. Meaning you could play right, 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 but you could also play right, left, right, left, right, right, left, right, left, right, left, left, right, left, right, left, right, right. And there's, they all sound different. This sounds different then. But I am playing the same rhythm. I'm just using two different stickings. So the third section of the book is the same vocabulary from the first from the first section of the book. Simple rhythms going up to complicated rhythms with lots of sticking permutations. That's the icing on the cake. So it's like if you add section one and, and section two, you basically wind up being able to play anything that you'll hear any drummer playing almost ever. And then when you add the stickings, now you start figuring out how different drummers play those same rhythms. So if you had five different drummers playing the same tune, they're each going to have a little bit of a different flavor. And a lot of that flavor is hidden in stickings in your choice of rights and lefts. Instead of the guy next to me is going to, he's got eight notes to play. Which hands are he going to, is he going to play those notes with? Eight different drummers may play eight different stickings for those same eight notes. So, so when, when you're writing a song, how do you know what is right? Because I have so much time where it's hard to trust my own ear. It's like, is it something you work out over time that yeah. you may start out with one and then as time goes on, you're experimenting? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that people, that consumers of music don't understand is when a, when a song comes out, you're not hearing the song the way it has always been. You're hearing a moment in its evolution. Right. So that song was written a year before it was recorded and it was evolving all of that time. And every day that a band rehearses it, they say, oh, why don't you try that? Why don't you try that? Oh, you play that part and you play that part. No, let's switch it. Okay, bass, you play the melody on this time and guitar, guitar you keep the rhythm. And this is what bands do in rehearsal is we try the same, we try the idea different ways. We pass the roles around. Oh, I'll play the easy part. You play the complicated shit on top. Oh no, no, let me play the complicated shit. You play an easy part. And then you decide, you have to decide at some point, all right, we're going to record this. Right. This is the way we like it best. And that's not even the end because yeah. a, then it can keep evolving. Again, you're not going to get like Paul McCartney's not going to play a single song on stage the way it is on the Beatles record. And people don't complain because it's Paul McCartney. So they're right. like, oh yeah, he's a, he's a genius. He's playing it differently. But this is true of every band. It doesn't right. matter whether you're a bunch of 12, 12 year olds in your garage or your tool. And a lot of people aren't going to notice. Like that's, no. it's... Or people want it. Like, look, right. some people go to shows and they want to hear the song the way it is on the record. Right. Some people go to shows and they do not want to hear the song the way it is on the record. This is taste. This is like yeah. you go to McDonald's because you know how that burger is going to taste or you try a new restaurant and order a dish you've never had because you like the adventure of a flavor mystery. Oh, do I like this? I don't know. Let me see. Oh, I do like it. And, you know, in in rock as a drummer, you're going to play the same bar many times repetitively because you want to get people physically into it. You People like to know what's coming up. They like predicting, oh, this is the big part coming up. Right. In jazz, you better not even play the same bar twice or people are just going to be like, what? You're not even improvising at all. Why are you just playing the same thing over and over? But again, those are two different genres of music. Right. So you want to hear repetition? 
go see, you know, a good pop band. You want to hear experimentation and a journey through a musical um, idea explored? Go see some jazz. But the songwriting is the same. It, you get a snap. When you get a record, you get a picture of a family standing in front of the Grand Canyon. You don't know what they were doing five minutes before that, and you don't know what they were doing five minutes after that. You're getting one moment in time. You're getting three minutes and 50 seconds of that band's life. It's, it's almost not, it's almost like the pilot episode, because if you look at the way like Chandler was dressed in the first episode of, of Friends, sure. with like these like leather vests or whatever, it's like eventually sure. it's like, they're like, oh, this one part of the song, we don't really like that. We're going to find a better way to play it. And the song evolves from there. Right. You know, yeah, like, 100%. I mean, can you imagine watching the first episode of any show you liked every time you wanted to watch that show? Yeah. So music and the life of a band is exactly like any other art. Like it's constantly changing. And when you write a song, like you said, you try a lot of things out, your producer or the record labels like, yo, you got to put a record out right. at that point. You record the way it is then. And two months later, who cares if you change it? I mean, some people care, but the, the musical background that I come from is about exploration and, and playing new things, playing old things differently. And this book basically gives every drummer all of those tools. The repetition of the basic ingredients, the ability to apply those ingredients to many, many different kinds of music, and then the ability in the end to go, oh, I can break all of these rules? Amazing. I'm yeah. my, my body is capable of breaking the rules because I know all of the ingredients in the kitchen. Now I can make anything. I know all the letters of the alphabet. Now I can spell any word. I know all the words in the dictionary. I can write a book. So that's the idea. And I use it with my students. Um, and it takes, I don't know, it takes four or five books to get a good curriculum for a music student. You know, there are different books that are narrow in scope. Mine is very broad in scope. It's, it's almost, it's almost the only book you need. You do need one other book, okay? There's one thing that my book is not, and that's rudimental, meaning it doesn't have the embellishments of strokes. And I won't go into too much detail. I don't know how much of your audience is gonna even be interested in, but there's, there's, a, whole, um, there's a whole school of how to play certain notes that are called rudiments. And they employ different, different tricks to make that note sound different. And that's called rudimental drumming. And that's necessary, 100%. Some of the, all the best drummers you hear, they're using that all the time. That's, the, that's one aspect of drumming. My book is, is everything but that. Because it would have been too big a book. It's too broad. My, I, my, I really wanted to focus on this. Vocabulary, using the vocabulary in every style of music and varying it with stickings. So you have my book, plus you have a book of rudiments. You're totally complete. You can literally go from never played drum before to professional drummer. I, I'd say in 10 years, maybe less, with those two books, my book and a book of rudiments. And there's a lot of great rudiment books out there. So every drum teacher has their favorite. I'm not going to name any because I've got three that depending on the student and, you know, their level of comprehension, I'll use one of the three. But but that's it. So I wanted a book that would really like eh, now you only yeah. need two books. You don't need five anymore. You need two. So. Well, speaking of students, so you mentioned before that you um, that you do a lot of lessons online. Uh, what what offerings do you have for if people want to get lessons from you? Do you have like what do you what are you uh, doing in that space? Everything basically. Um, 
Most, almost all of my students take weekly lessons or at the least frequent bi-weekly lessons. If a lot of adults are just too busy with family, um, some people that just money is too tight for weekly. So I do have a handful of people that take bi-weekly, bi but the key is consistency. It doesn't really matter what the frequency is as long as you're practicing between lessons. You're not just showing up, doing it for an hour and then leaving it behind for a week. You have to practice. That's really muscle weird. memory is huge for yeah, something like this. The whole thing, right? And muscle, yeah. not just the memory, but you right. do have to build. You have to train it and then, speed, yeah, yeah. Speed and strength are important for drummers. So you got to get your speed up, you got to get your strength up, mm. but the muscle memory is key so that you're not you're not hiccuping, you know, oh, what do I do? How do I do that? No, you got to just already know, like we're speaking to each other with words. That's what you do right. with music. So I offer weekly lessons, bi-weekly lessons. Every now and then I have someone who comes to me once a month who wants me to pile it on, they work on it for a month, they come back, that's pretty rare. But in my in my career of teaching, I've, I have four or five students that have gone from fourth grade, one, two, three, four, to they're in bands touring and putting out records now. And wow. that's like, for me, that's the shit. I mean, yeah. I took them from fourth grade to 12th grade, then they played in bands in college, then they went out on the road. That's awesome. So I offer that online. I offer it in person. I go house to house in my in my neighborhood. So anything that's impressive because like there's so many there's so many reasons to quit playing drums. Like they're expensive. They're noisy. My neighbor's gonna hate them. Like it's like I don't know what I'm. It's like it's, so it's like to be able to get that many students to do that well. That's pretty impressive. Like yeah, it it is. And you know, I mean, like you said, all you have to do is go on YouTube and. There's a lot of reasons to, to not play drums, but there's a lot of reasons to play drums. I mean, look, we're only on this planet as in a human form, probably once, at least knowing that we're here. Right. It's hard to do everything you want to do. I run that all the time. It's, yeah. it's, it's maybe more fulfilling to do a few things really, really well. Some people enjoy doing lots and lots of different things, sampling a lot of things in life. I like that to some extent, but I really like to go deep into shit. And anyone who knows me knows that even to a fault, I go deep into everything that I do. So if I'm doing something, you just step aside. Yeah. I'm, I'm going all in. And drumming is the only one of those things that I've done all in for 40 well, years yeah. now, 42 years. So I started playing when I was eight, I'm 50, and I have been at a drum set every almost almost every single day of those 42 years. At least I've had sticks in my hand every day. Even if I'm in the woods, I go up to Canada. My family's got a place in Canada. It's the clo it's the absolute most dear place and thing in my life. Be Love Canada. I still bring a pair of drumsticks. Yeah. So I don't care if I'll sit up there on the porch and watch the sunset. Yeah. It's just a way to express myself, you know? Yeah. I get energy out of it. I get energy from it. So I've never stopped. And I like seeing it when other people don't stop. When I see people catch that bug and like they go from like, I don't want to practice. I don't want to practice to right. like, oh, that's cool. And, then, then like, the and they're teenagers and they're like, yeah, man, chicks love me. And like, it's, yeah. it's like, they're like, it's a road. So for me who, you know, I've, I've made beats for a while, like on like rudiment, on like samplers that I got from like, you know, the mid 2000s and stuff. But I showed you before, like this thing that I just picked up, I'm just now approaching the learning curve on this. This machine plus is like a real piece of equipment for somebody who, so with this one now I'm taking an approach, right? I've always done drums to get by. 
I've done like pretty simple loops, but now with that I have this sort of tool that I'm probably going to have till the day that I die, like I want to actually go in deeper. So what's a good place for me to start getting a basic understanding of just the theory of drums, like to start getting my, my brain going in the right direction without being over my head. Um, rhythmic, rhythmic vocabulary is the key to everything. And it doesn't matter what instrument you play. Anybody, anybody will tell you, anybody should tell you the same thing. You have to learn the alphabet. When you've learned the alphabet, you can spell any word and you can write any story. So it's not that complicated. It's, it's not because it's very mathematical. We're basically doubling or having the last thing. I kind of talked about this. You yep. got one pulse and now you turn it into two pulses. And then you take those two pulses and you turn them into four pulses and you learn the same thing in, in different gears, different speeds, but we call them subdivisions. So you have to learn the very limited, it is very limited. There's just not as many as people think. They're like, oh, music is infinite. No, it's not. Yeah. There are infinite combinations of a very limited number of rhythms. That is true. Again, it's like a million monkeys typing on a million typewriters. Yeah, that's same with notes too. Is. You know, there's, there's limited number of notes. You know, right? Even if you're on a piano, you're dealing with 88. That's pretty wide. Right. If you combine, and I'm not even, I'm not even joking here. I'm gonna go out on a limb and tell you that there's 22 rhythms in all contemporary modern music. Okay, this does not include the country, the countries of India, or the mid Slavic countries where they've got some rhythmic variation that we're not dealing with on this side of the planet. But on this side of the planet, there are 22 rhythms. And on a piano, there's 88 keys. And those 88 keys playing those 22 rhythms are every song you've ever heard in your life. Oh, it's remarkable. I, I tried to explain to somebody recently that almost every song they've ever heard in their, their life was something called a 4-4 beat. And it was like I pulled a rabbit out of my hat. Yes. And, it, and it's just, but I even remember a time in my life before I started rapping, I didn't understand what a 4-4 beat was. I'm like, how do the Beastie Boys always know the right part to end with a rhyme? Like, I remember like trying to figure <laughs> that out as a kid. Yeah. And you got patterns. You got same, 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 different. Same, 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 different. That's yeah. a pattern no matter how big you blow it up. You've got intro, verse, verse, chorus. Guitar solo, guitar solo, guitar solo, breakdown. This one, two, three, four thing is universal. People don't realize it. Again, it's like salt in food. You're like, oh, right. I like it. I like it better now. It's yeah, so it's universal that <laughs> that it's like when you it, when it's off, it's so it's so um, jarring when it's off. Yeah, in a good way or a bad way. So right. you can hear a bad band who doesn't quite have a grip on these these this vocabulary, and they're kind of at, at a loss for words or they're misusing words, and you go, mm, I don't really like that. But you can also hear really skillful musicians dropping a beat, adding a couple beats. Right turning the beat around and you go, ooh, I like that. And it's really kind of the difference between like a kid splattering paint on the wall and Jackson Pollock splattering paint right. on the wall. Like a mind that has done all of the stuff beat that leads to it can get away with some pretty, some pretty interesting rule breaking. Right. Because con context matters yeah, a lot. Yeah, exactly. But if you never knew the rules and you're breaking all the rules, people are like, oh, you don't know what you're doing. Right. So, you know, a, a little goes a long way when you've already put the time in to master that little.
as Lisa Simpson said, you got to listen to the notes that they're not playing. That is 100% true. And here's a great example in closing. Yeah. Here are 16 notes, all the same. Here are those same 16th notes, some louder than others. Here are those same 16th notes, and I'm going to leave some out. There are still 16 notes. The notes I left out are still, those are in the musician's head. There's not actual space in there to a musician. There's just notes we're not playing. And a thousand people have said what you just said. It's the space between the notes, right? Take me out to the ball game. You know, like, take me out to the ball game, take me out right. to the crowd, buy me some, right? Every song would be the same. How much, how many beats are you going to wait before you sing that next word? That's where all the variety in music comes from. That's what music vocabulary is. Otherwise, everything would be. Yeah. Right? You leave two of those notes out, you got a different song. Yeah. yeah. And then you put subdivide each of those beats and you take some of those out. Now you have your own song. That's where you can customize everything you play. So it doesn't matter whether you're playing an MPC and programming or you're playing violin, learn vocabulary. Quarter notes, eighth notes, triplets, 16th notes, at least as a minimum. It goes a little farther than that, but not much farther. You learn the vocabulary of those four rhythms. And I I told you there's only 22. Learn those 22, man. You can, not only will you understand everything you hear, but you'll be able to create anything that you want to hear. It's it sounds like music in my ears. I'm going to be doing that. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, do you, uh, I'm also thinking about sampling a bunch of that stuff you just played. On- <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll give you something better than that. I try to, you know, make it simple and clear here. Yeah, man. I'll give you some stuff to sample. No problem. Yeah. Do you have a few more minutes to talk some Almond Brothers or you, do you have to go? Sure. No, I'm good. So like, I mean, I was a big almond and all that's fantastic answer. I'm so excited about that. I don't want to sell that short because that's kind of what what I needed to hear at the right time. Mm-hmm. Uh, almond Brothers to me, the closest I've ever been to being arrested in my life was at an Almond Brothers show that I did not have tickets to at Great Woods in, in um, Mansfield, Mass, where I was underage and I went, um, cops came on their little bikes and for some reason I ran, I don't know why. They tracked me down, threw me on the hood of the car, got the cuffs out. And then I had like beers in like my like cargo shorts, which puts this. Yes. And then eventually um, the cop fell off a bike in front of me, which was pretty funny. So he was still in a good enough mood. He eventually let me go. And um, after threatening with trespassing, because I didn't have a ticket. But um, yeah, so that that's Almond Brothers, man. It's like it that was um we went we had a great night that night afterwards. A lot of better nights when we actually got into the show because I absolutely love the Almond Brothers, but you never knew what you're gonna expect when we went to the Almond Brothers show where I was from. Um, what was your history with the band? Because I'm endlessly fascinated by them. They're a group that even when I was mostly listening to rap or most listening to punk, I was still listening to them because I never could get tired of it. So yeah, I mean they were a very special band. Their their sound was incredible incredibly unique um, at a time when everybody was experimenting, right? Everything, everything was a blues band back then, right? Everybody was a blues band doing something different with the blues. Uh, they were doing something special with the blues. Um, it's funny what you just said, because my one of my first experiences with the Allman Brothers was getting p- pulled out of a Allman Brothers show by security 
for smoking weed in the Beacon Theater as a teenager, seeing the Allman Brothers and literally like grabbed my ear and tore me out of the show. And literally eight years later, we were having dinner with Butch Trucks and he was signing us to a record deal. <laughs> and and I just, I remember talking to the rest of the guys like on the way home, I was like, like, do we understand what's happening here? Like yeah. literally eight years ago, we were like spending 50 bucks to see the Allman Brothers and getting kicked out of the show. And now we're like, we have VIP passes to every Allman Brothers show we want to go to anywhere in the country. We just walk in. Yeah. Butch Trucks is buying us dinner. He's given me drum equipment and being like, oh, you got to try this, man. Here's a bass drum pedal. My boy gave this to me. Blah, 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 blah. And we were hanging out at Dickie Betts's house in Florida. Oh, and Suk is playing Dickie's guitar and like, you know, and, and his engineer's like, oh, yeah, he recorded Blue Sky on that. And Suk is just like, ah. Playing Blue Sky on the guitar that Blue Sky was. Um, there's also, I have a really funny story. I'll, I'll keep it really short, but I had surgery hey, on, on my left wrist. And um, after my cast came off, I still couldn't use it for a few weeks. It was just, there was no cast. So it looked like a normal wrist. And I went to see Dickie Betts with a bunch of people I knew. And I knew a bunch of people that worked for him. And I kind of knew Dickie, even though Butch Trucks was, was the record label guy. We knew all of the guys in the band because we opened for them lots while they were trying to help get our record played. So they let us open for them. What, what's better, right? Yeah, put, we'll put you guys in front of us. Yeah, and, you know, couldn't hurt. So one of their drummers, who I also kind of knew, was like, oh, you got to sit in tonight. And I was like, no, no, I can't. Like, I just had surgery. I just had my cast off. I know it looks normal, but I can't even like pick up a glass of, of beer. Like, I have no strength in my hand. Well, he didn't give a shit or he didn't believe me or something because... I'm standing on the side of the stage and as I think it was, it might've been Blue Sky or Melissa or one of the great tunes that Dickie wrote, he gets up from behind the drumstick and puts the drumsticks in my hands and goes, play on this tune, man. And he goes over to the percussion uh. set and he starts playing congas. And I have no choice at that point. There's no one at the drum set. He's not getting, he's not moving. Dickie is already starting the song. So I get up there and again, I don't remember what tune it was, but I have to play with one hand. I could, if I had struck the drum dude, I would have screamed in pain and undo, undid like yeah. $20,000 surgery that was repairing my wrist. So I had played this fucking tune with one hand. So I don't know remember what it is, you know? Yeah. Anyway, I remember Dickie giving me like a smile because he liked the way it sounded. He's like, oh yeah. yeah, someone's sitting in. Sounds good, man. And then out of the corner of his eye, he saw that I was playing with one hand and that smile turned into like, I'm gonna kill this showboating asshole. Like who does he think he is playing one hand behind me? He just thought I was trying to be hot shit. Oh my God. I swear to God. And you can't discuss it on stage because no, we're in the I middle know. of like, you know, Melissa or something. Yeah. So afterwards backstage, he sees me, he comes rushing at me. Literally, he's gonna kick my ass. And all the people in the entourage that know me and know, they're like, no, Dickie, Dickie, he's gotta, he can't use his left hand. Matt didn't know that. He had him sit in, he shouldn't have sat in. He couldn't play with his left hand. He wasn't being an asshole like, and they kept Dickie from kicking my ass. But that was, you know, we have, I have 20 stories like that. I'm not gonna tell them all, but it was great to get to know those guys. I'm really glad that they threw their support behind us. I was very disappointed that it didn't work out. But again, 
their business acumen was poor at best. And oh, I imagine. It's not like, only did they sink their own record label, but they had a hand in sinking our our you know arrival at that level of the industry. Uh, because then all of a sudden, you know, that momentum was lost and our record didn't have a distributor anymore, but we didn't have any more records. It was like, it was a whole fiasco. So, um, it was, I mean, it's pretty remarkable a group like that can keep themselves together that long. So it's like, cause most can't. So it's like the fact that they, the idea that they keep other groups going is like, cause I mean, you mentioned before about, I mean, I was in a hip hop group with me and three other guys and it really is like being in a relationship with multiple people. And it's, it's just as hard. It's, it's, it's really hard to keep a band together. It's cause people change so quickly. Yeah, very much so. And they were very different people. And the only thing that kept them together is they all went their separate ways after every show yeah. they all had their own bus you keith and mick thing <laughs> they, yeah. they, they, they were getting other's... on the same bus at the yeah. end of the show man everybody had their own bus and their families were on their bus and they went in different directions i mean honestly the 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 day or two before our record our debut record was supposed to come out um i forget who punched who but butch punched Dickie in the face and broke his nose. And that completely overshadowed, like the whole momentum yeah. was like, Schleho's records coming out. These guys have the stamp of, of approval from the Allman Brothers. The Allman Brothers prodigy, new, you know, this new band that the Allman Brothers want everyone to hear. Okay, it went from that to, oh my God, Butch punched Dickie. And our record came out to a whisper. Yeah. Because all the press was on the fist fight by, backstage at the Almond Brothers show. This yeah. is the kind of like. It's like being cast in a Will Smith movie the day before he slaps Chris Rock. <laughs> like... yeah, right. A hundred percent. Like yeah. imagine, imagine being in the Will Smith movie that was coming out the yeah, day like, before Will Smith. <laughs> tough one. Tough exactly. One. That's exactly. So then we had to claw back from that, you know, yeah. but and um, those moments are tough to recreate. It's like, it's time. And it's like, it's, you know, things change so quickly. It's, it's really Causes hard. and conditions causes and everything's always swirling around in the universe. You never know which marble's going to hit which marble. And sometimes you're right between the two months. I mean, the thing is like, <clears throat> not to like just make an example out of them, but like that sort of behavior, like you're talking about the thinking you're being showboated and wanting to punch somebody and stuff like that. <laughs> like I can't, like, I wouldn't do that. Like, like ever, like my ego is like tiny. It's like, do you think that part of that is, is it's like, unless you're that level of it's, it's almost bullying behavior. Do you think you need that to get to that level or does that develop over time? You think? No, it's not, not all artists are like that, like at all. I mean, look, you take guys like- I'm, I'm guessing cocaine at some- <laughs> Oh, drugs, drugs have yeah. a tremendous amount to do with it. Yeah. Absolutely. But those guys look for better or for worse, their egos were enormous, mm -hmm. all of them. Um, with the exception of J-Mo. And that's why J-Mo was never caught up in any of that drama because he was just a mellow down to earth dude who wanted to make music. Um, you take Jimmy Herring and Oteil Burbridge, who are literal top of the charts rock stars now, but they used to play an aquarium rescue unit together and we used to play with them. They were and still are the most humble, appreciative, grateful, music loving, spiritual souls. They, they do not have that thing that the Allman Brothers had. And again, the Allman Brothers were the biggest band around for a long time. Right. There were a lot of drugs and being a rock star in the 70s is very different than being a rock star now. Yes. Very Reed different. Hammer of the Gods, people. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt, right? 
I mean, that kind of Led Zeppelin mentality, it doesn't really fly anymore. You get oh, no, people God, like no. Kanye West and everyone just makes fun of him because he's got that same swagger that that John Bonham and Butch Trucks had. Right. But you know, it's or a joke, it sounds man. funny to throw a TV out a window, but when you actually see it happening and you realize how dangerous it is, it's like it's different. It's People, like come on, yeah, right. So ego has everything to do with it, and there are absolute bona fide rock stars that don't that don't have that ego, and they're good. They're they're still alive, first of all, which almost none of the Allman Brothers are. Yeah, right. And they're happy, which right, not many of the Allman Brothers were. Well, that's why you think of too. Shocked to see, like, the Allman Brothers often came off stage, and they were not, they were not happy people. Yeah. It must be weird too that it's like, like, hey, someone says to you when you're like 15, you're like, okay, you're gonna see the world, you're gonna go everywhere, and you're gonna see all these wonderful things, but it's gonna be with the same group of three nitwits you're hanging out with now, <laughs> and it's like you're all gonna spend their your entire, and it's like it's a weird bargain that like eventually yeah. you're like you can't just, it's like you can't just replace Dickie Betts and the Almond Brothers. It's like you know, I mean, I guess there's been a lot of replacements in the Almond Brothers, but still, it's not like. But it was never the same, right? And, yeah. and also, look, the bands that persevere have certain things that the bands that don't persevere don't have and one of those is interpersonal skills right yeah it doesn't matter how good a band you are and and I look I'll I'll even you know again not to not to flatter myself but Schleho was a great band like we had a unique thing a unique sound we played well we were innovative but we blew it because we just didn't have the the maturity level to to rise above the stupid adversity that was thrown at us as you know mid-level musicians but some people do some people that though look our peers that were on that scene that are winning grammys and writing all of the hits right now they had more they had better heads on their shoulders then than than we did. It is remarkable too to think about some of these icons that like even I anyway, go back to hip hop, but someone like a Tupac died so young. You're like, you were able to make the decisions that led to you even being able to get to a recording studio when you were at that age. And it's just like it's remarkable to think that like not even just the talent, but the maturity in a way, while still also being totally immature at other things. Like right. it's it's they just it's some just, people just have that. You yeah, know? it's not just about writing great music and being able to perform it. There's a few other things at play that you have to have the complete package. You also have to love it. Yes. Look, there's plenty of people that have all the other things and they just don't enjoy it and they stop doing it and you don't hear about them anymore. That's, yeah. you gotta have that too. You gotta, you gotta keep loving it. <laughs> I go visit friends that are selling out arenas and I hang out with them and we hang out after the show and I'm backstage during the show and I'm watching and then we come back afterwards and they're getting onto a bunk in a bus and I'm going home to a house with my wife and my pets and a wood stove in the woods and I don't regret it. Like, yeah. I'm like, I don't want to be getting into a bunk on that bus. I just don't, that's not, I, I thought I wanted that for a while and I got onto a bunk in a bus for a while, but after a while I was like, I don't wanna be here anymore. This is not fun for me. But there's people that are like, this is still fun for me. God bless them, like, it doesn't matter what you enjoy as long as you enjoy it. You gotta be true 
to who you are. And yeah. there's plenty of people that are great songwriters, great performers, have a good head on their shoulders, and they go, you know, this is bullshit. That fourth little bit where like, this is not bullshit, I enjoy this. That's yeah. the fourth the fourth ingredient that now you're just going to do it forever, like the Rolling Stones. I mean, what's ever going to stop Mick Jagger? Come on. Gross. He's got all four of those. He's got all four of them. He can write the tunes. He can perform the tunes. He's got a good head on his shoulders, and he loves doing it. Yeah. That's a combination, you know? I know. There's, that's the O'Teal, Jimmy Herring, Eric Krasno. I, you know, I know producers that are writing all the hit tunes on the charts right now. They were on the road with us 25 years ago. But they've got that special, those four ingredients that everyone may be, you're missing one and it's going to be tough, you know, but some people have all four. Yeah. It's like some people, it's just really hard for them to get motivated. And it's like, you don't really want to, those people just are, aren't, aren't honest with themselves about how much they really want to do it or not. And I think that's a big thing is self-awareness and honesty with yourself, what you really want to get out of your musical goals, you know? Yeah, a hundred percent. It was self-awareness that we knew what we wanted to do and we did it until we knew that we didn't want to do it anymore. And then we knew we didn't want to do it like that anymore. I mean, I've still, everybody is still playing music. Right. Everybody from Schleho like is still living a life of music. We're just not, we're just not traveling from city to city playing for strangers every night. It's just a different, a different mode of expression. There's no less music in my life than there was 20 years ago. It's just, I, I'm, I'm spreading it person by person by person instead of right. to 200 people at once and then going back to an empty hotel room and then 200 people at once and then empty hotel room. Like I'm seeing people all day. We're sharing music. We're playing music together, but then I'm sleeping in my home bed and I'm having a home cooked meal. And that's the way I like it. You know? Well, I just recently saw the Swirlies played one of their first shows in 25 years out in, in Western Mass recently. And they're a local favorite band that I like. Any chance we're going to see any Schleho reunion shows? Not, not, no, we did our 30th anniversary and that was pretty much the, that, you know, that was at this point, it seems like that was our last, our last hurrah. You know, it was great. We played, we played the cities that we love to play the most. And we saw the people that we really, that were very dear to our hearts, fans that became friends, you know, yeah. you come, after you've come to 250 Schleho shows, like you're our bud. Like we slept on the same floors in the same cities for so many nights that those people are family. We saw them again. We played for them again, but it's not what it used to be. Um, and, and it's, it's hard to get it to where it used to be to a level where you're just as proud of it. And right. you don't want to just keep bringing like your 80% to the table anymore when you know that everybody's heard you at a hundred percent. So it would take Schleho five years of daily rehearsals to get to the level that we were at because that's what we were doing. We were living together, eating together, traveling together, breathing together. We all lived together the whole time. We rehearsed every living moment that we weren't wow. in the, on stage. We were at home in the yeah. Up in the same that's house not something you can do when you're at this point. In your well, life, you could, you know? but well, yeah, don't want like, to. Yeah, it's <laughs> I, like, I don't want to. I, I feel like it'd be a sickness if you wanted to do that because that was for me. It's like I was playing in a hip hop group around Boston. We were opening for like Onyx and like Warren G and like Slain, and it's, you're just like I'm like. Well, the next step is we could book some shows around New England and like get in a van. And I was like, ooh, I don't like the sound of that next step. But I was just like, yeah, maybe I'll just be the guy in the studio at home. I, I didn't see myself like this is kind of dark, but I remember when I heard Chris Cornell died in a hotel room from like suicide. My first thought is, yeah, I can see that. 
I'm like, it just seems like a really hard way to live that I, I've had to travel for business for short periods of time. I could never do it for a long period of time. You don't know how happy these people are, and it certainly isn't fame and money that makes a person happy. So just exactly. because they're getting attention and they got a fat bank account, it says nothing about their contentness as a human being. There are piss poor people living really hard lives who fucking whistle their way to work every day. Yeah. And there are rich, famous people who are miserable. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with your condition, your outer conditions. It's all your inner workings. And um, so it never surprises me when rich, famous people um, either die or kill themselves because it's got nothing to do with that. It doesn't have anything yeah. to do with that. There's, um, it's funny too, cause I was watching, I'm supposed to, to interview some techno DJs from that I used to listen to a lot back in the day, like 20 years ago. So I went back and watched some documentaries that from that era that I, I still had on DVD from back then. It shows like this rave footage and it's like, the difference of my, like I was one of those kids, I actually posted a picture on Instagram of me today, my bleach blonde hair, my UFO pants with my glow sticks. I was looking fly. And, um, but like now I, I, I before I'd watch that and identify with the people in the crowd, but now I'm identifying with like the DJs and I'm more thinking about, all right, what would it be like to get my sound in there? What would it be like to get, how quickly could I get in and out of there without talking to anybody in the crowd? And I started thinking about like the way I would, if I were to go to that now and what capacity it would be and, and how quickly I'd be trying to get away from people and it's just yeah I, if you're still need i feel like there's something that if you still need that level of attention from strangers at that point in your life like it's it's only going to lead to bad places <laughs> it can well again in unless unless you know where you stand or have your own self-awareness yes you know? if you can rest peacefully within your own mind in that situation you'll be fine yeah. If it agitates you, then you might want to stay away. And if it angers you or it depresses you, then you better stay away. There's, you know, there's a lot of nuance in there. You can be like, like I said, you can just handle it perfectly. And there's a lot of gray area between there and like, now I'm suicidal. Right. There's people that still do it, but it kind of, they don't like it. So they only do it a little and they try and get in and get out and make their money and then go home. Again, as long as you know what works for you yeah. and you don't deny it, because denying it will make you miserable. Um, that's again, that's why four hands shot up when our road manager's like, who wants to go home, you know? Do you guys all look at each other like you were surprised or were you all, did you all know, when you raised your hand, were you like, did you know everybody was gonna raise their hands too? Or do you think you knew? I don't remember. In hindsight, I'm not surprised, but I don't actually remember my thoughts about it then. Um, I've had, I've had relationship breakups that were kind of like that. And yeah. it's like, it's refreshing. <laughs> we're still friends. We need to break up. Yeah. It's oh, like, oh, it's this nice is... that we both said that at the same time. Yeah. The first truly um, mutual breakup, but it's, you know. Yeah. It might've been a little bit like that, but again, we knew that we were unhappy. We did know that we were unhappy then. So I yeah. think, I don't think it was surprising, but that wasn't, we didn't really break up at that point. We just stopped touring two, 250 nights a year. Yeah. Considering you guys all live together, from the, you guess you're all going back to the same house too. Like that was, I hadn't considered that before. Yeah, in the same vehicle. 
What was that? So what, I mean, what was that like when you got back there? Was it, did it feel any different, or was it just like because you it said you sad. hadn't really made any full decisions? Did you go no. back there just playing right away, or did you just start living your own lives to greater we, degree? We gradually started living our own lives. It was kind of sad. Again, it's like it was like a relationship where you know, oh, okay, which one of us is going to keep the apartment? And, right. You know, Time to take this poster down or like something. Yeah. So yeah. we all did kind of stay in close proximity to each other, but we stopped living together, which again, it brings down the level of commitment. Yeah. You know, then now we have to schedule rehearsals. It wasn't like, hey, I got a great idea. Come down and play this with me. That's the way it was for 10, almost 15 years. Yeah. You know, Suk would walk into my room. I'd be sitting there smoking a butt, you know, whatever, reading a magazine. And he'd go, hey, man, what do you think of this? And I'd be like, oh, let's go down and work it out. Like, you kind of have to have that. Yeah. Um, then when you're like, Hey, can we all get together on Tuesday? Oh no, I got a thing. Okay. How about Friday? Oh no. You know, yeah, then it becomes more difficult. And then again, you get modern Wu Tang music where people are just emailing wave files across the world. And it's um, like, <laughs> there's that I'm doing that now. I'm actually going Me to California <laughs> in a couple months to record three projects and they're sending me tracks and I'm sent putting scratch tracks on top and sending them back and we're saving a lot of rehearsal time. I'm going to get out there and record the record, but it's not as fun that way as it was back when we were, you know, there was definitely something to it when we were all living together and loving it. Yeah. The creative level is just off, off the charts at that point. The creative juices, they never turn off. They yeah. never turn off. You're always making new music and, it's such a double-edged sword because I was mentioned Digital Underground before. Unfortunately, Shock G that I mentioned passed away a few years ago. But um, he has a replacement in that group, this guy named Young Hump, who actually played him in the Tupac movie because he helped Tupac get his start. And I last when 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 Shock G passed away, I was at the time I was in talks with his manager to do a song with him, and it probably wasn't going to happen after I found out what happened with his death. But like, so I got the opportunity to do a song with his replacement, Young Hump, who just happened to hit me up on Instagram, and within a day, like I. Had Record. I wrote, I didn't know this was happening. I, I had a beat. I just, he said, yes, I wrote, he sent me a message about it. Uh, we agreed on it. I paid him. Like the song was done within a day. And it's like, that's something that like, that like I love about the way it is, but there was never a moment where we got to be in the same studio together. We didn't get to collaborate. We, we, we worked off each other, but didn't get to have that experience. And that's always, you know? Yeah. It's different. I remember one, one day driving to a gig in Vermont and we were writing material in the van. We were singing parts to each other and writing it down and like, okay, wait, you play this on your knee. Let me play this, da, da, da. Yeah. We were so into it, dude, that we missed an exit and we didn't realize it for hours. Oof. And all of a sudden we see a uh, entering Gloucester, Massachusetts. <laughs> and that's when it clicked. We were like, holy shit. Like we went, we'd be going the wrong way for two hours. Like we uh, passed, we were supposed uh, to get on 91 and go up to like Brattleboro or some shit. And we just oh stayed God. on the mass bike until we hit the ocean because we were so into this tune. And it is, it is one of the best tunes we ever wrote. Like the result was well worth it because it's a badass song. Did you ever make it to the gig? Yeah, we did. Super late, like showed up when we were supposed to be playing through our stuff on stage. It was probably a bar. We were probably playing in the corner. Had to set up our own PA. No one showed up. It was like an empty gig. So not only were we late, but we did all of that rushing and stressing for nothing because we could have been two hours late and it still wouldn't have mattered. 
That's the crazy thing about gigs too that I think people understand is that like sometimes people just don't show up for reasons oh. that you can't like. Yeah, just... certainly when you're starting. I mean, this was a point at, in our careers where we were playing as often as we can, as often as we could. And sometimes we would book gigs in towns where no one knew us and there were right. bigger bands playing nearby, but we didn't care. We look, we had to make our, this was the nineties. We had to make our 250 bucks a night, 300 bucks a night in order to put gas in the tank and food in our bellies. So we would play Plymouth, New Hampshire on a Tuesday night, the the week of finals at UNH. Yeah. Like no one's going out, right? I mean, but you still have to play. Right. It's, still paid, like, it's oh. still paid practice for at least. And it's like, you know, hundred percent it's, it was paid practice, not just musically, but for again for our souls right. and there's a different skill to learn to, you want to learn the skill of playing to a small room the same way you want to learn the skill of playing it's like it's just more you know the reps get you well, something we certainly could get really experimental and tweak yeah. tunes and like you know that's that's sometimes where songs get developed because you don't take as many chances when you're playing to a full house. You 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 right. like to take some, but you don't want to get that far. Dude, if there's four people at the bar and they don't care what you're going to do, you right. can flip a tune upside down and just be like, oh, that was funny. Yeah. Oh, I kind of liked it that way. All right, let's try it again tomorrow night. You wouldn't go that far out at the House of Blues on New Year's Eve, you know. Right. Yeah, you know yeah, it yeah. works. You're going to give it to them, you know. Yeah, agreed. So. <laughs> All right, man, I feel like I've taken up a bunch of your time, but this was great. Like, Very enjoyable, um, dude. Thank you for having yeah, me. Definitely check out your book, um, A Guide to Rhythmic Freedom by Eric Eagle. Um, it's E-G-O-L. It's actually, there it is. We're going to have it actually up in the corner. Um, I'm pointing to where it will be by the time you yeah, see this. It's, it'll uh, be it's available on ericeagle.com. And there's also some supplemental material on the website for free. So if you just want to get a taste and you want to download some PDFs and go, whoa, I'd like to check out 175 pages like this. <laughs> you can sample the download and uh, and the, the book is out there. There's also a lot of videos on my YouTube channel. I'm starting to populate a little bit more with some descriptions of the books, of the book and playing examples and uh, videos of my students playing examples from the book. Little snippets of, hey, look, here's here's a real person. You know, been taking lessons for three or four years, getting good, doing the book. So wait, yeah, you offer lessons too. So go to the website, check Absolutely. it out. We'll have that under your name the whole time. Uh, thank you so much, man. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. Some motherfucking dub in You feel me? City blocks for low with any guap. Same shit, eh? Yeah, my first full gray hair. One more felony, I might have my first full gray beard. It's way weird. Feel like that was only yesterday. I'ma slowly blow like parolees. The homies guesstimate when I blow, don't roll me like you know me. No, hit the exit stage. Left of the tackle spray, redirecting your steps this way. It feels shit progressing. Got the steel with the vested. Even in the summertime, I will Smith and Wesson. You cutting from the grassy, so underground. Nardwar wouldn't know what the fuck to ask me. I stick it in the stomach. Now let me hit the throat. She call me Mr. Drummond So many different strokes Your punchlines, Mr. Drummond Audience, Mr. Jokes To your family, return from visit, folks Some summer loving Some summer loving That's just
grips Cause her man went from damaged kid to damn he's rich But she still can't stand the way he manages To never put nickels in the can for the cancer kids Plus he cheats at cornhole and brags that he won So she lost interest like porno after she comes My DM started jingling baby as it was done Two seconds later I can hear the snapping of her gums She calls me half Dodge Challenger, half Lip Gallagher I'm happy that I luckily sat next to her in algebra I try to hold her down but I just couldn't balance her Between the million meetings that I keep in my calendar Plus odds aren't too sloppy that I know why my cell is blowing up Probably, but I should check just as well Call the cops, see if I can get a hold and tell If that's copyrights, yell, raising hell inside the holding cell Table, we take charge. I got a style you can make love. 